All right, well, on Easter, we started a resurrection series. We didn't want Easter to be just a day. We wanted it to be an entire series, and we talked about resurrecting from failure, resurrecting from suffering, and today we're talking about resurrecting from addiction. So we are just hitting all the buttons on this uh, series, resurrecting from addiction. Now, when you see that word addiction, your first reaction might be, ah, well, maybe this sermon isn't for me. It's for those addicts. Well, let me just kind of break through that right now. I am an addict. I'm an addict. And I'm going to share with you a few of my addictions, maybe not all of them, but a few of them, and hopefully you have fun with that. So what is an addict? Well, addiction is defined this way. Addiction is being bound to a behavior that is psychologically or physiologically habit-forming to the extent that stopping the behavior causes distress. That's what addiction is. It's a well-recognized definition of addiction. So this is the foundation for our whole time together here today, so I'm going to read it again. Addiction is being bound to a behavior that is psychologically or physiologically habit-forming to the extent that stopping the behavior causes distress. So I'm going to start with my more lightweight addictions. I am addicted by that definition clinically to Mexican food. (laughs) It is a daily addiction. I'm not kidding you. Six to eight Mexican meals a week. It is an addiction. The thought of stopping that addiction causes extreme distress. Whenever I travel like overseas, I brace myself for a lack of Mexican food for a period of time. Uh, for example, when I go to Texas, there's no Mexican food in Texas. I don't know what it is, but there's no Mexican food in Texas. It's this ground beef hard shell caca. And, and so I'm with my in-laws and they say, hey, we're going to Mexican food tonight. And I'm like, stop, we're not going to Mexican food tonight. You're gonna take us to a Mexican restaurant, but it's not Mexican food and I protest. And we go there anyway and they don't care. And then when we fly into San Diego, this is a family addiction, we fly into San Diego, we go to Old Town Mexican Food, and we live there for four hours until we get reacclimated, until we have that Mexican food fix, and then we can go on with life. I am also addicted to certain um, benefits of marriage. It's a clinical addiction. That's as much as I'll say. I am addicted, I am addicted to the news. I ha- I'm a news junkie. Uh, when the alarm goes off and, and this uh, iPad on the charger sits there, beep, 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 the most annoying thing, beep, 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 I just, uh, stop, news app. I mean, five seconds from alarm to news app, and I get myself oriented what happened in the world the last seven hours I was sleeping. I'm a news junkie. There are some more serious addictions that I have. Um, I was addicted to caffeine, heavily addicted to caffeine. My 25-year routine was to have between four and six, I want to say cups, but you might think cups are like cups, four to six mugs of coffee every morning. And then uh, I'd start getting that kind of coffee queasy. And coffee queasy is solved by soft drinks. So I'd go to caffeinated soft drinks. And then you kind of get that sweet thing, you know, that you got to dull, which is dulled by coffee. So I have my after lunch coffee. I get the coffee sickness and I go to the fizzy sodas again, sugar sodas, caffeine sodas. And then we'd end the day, uh, my wife and I both with a cup or two of caffeinated coffee. So we're talking about 10 plus mugs of coffee a day. About five years ago, uh, I started feeling what I thought were panic attacks. And they were pretty, pretty heavy duty. And I got a little concerned. First of all, I obviously walk with a lot of people who struggle with panic attacks. I'd never had them myself. So I thought, okay, well, this is what it must feel like. I've got a lot of pastor friend of mine, friends of mine who talk about pastoral panic attacks. It's very normal in the world of pastoral, you know, public speaking and expectations and all that. So I thought, okay, this is my time for panic attacks. I went 18 months with doctor's appointments as well, trying to figure all this stuff out. 
when I realized that, you know what, these panic attacks are happening half an hour after my morning pick-me-up and half an hour after my afternoon pick-me-up. I bet this is coffee. It was just a light bulb that went on after 18 months of suffering. I'm very slow. Maybe this is caffeine crushing my body. And it was. It was this crushing, like, felt like a heart attack, whatever that feels like. I haven't had one yet. It's coming. But just crushing chest pain. So I stopped caffeine. It was not easy. I stopped caffeine and have never felt that sensation since. And uh, so that's a full-blown addiction to caffeine. I'm no longer addicted. That's pretty cool, so I can live. Uh, I was addicted to affirmation. Uh, I, I, I had a serious addiction to affirmation. This is a psychological addiction. It's actually clinically named narcissistic supply. So uh, folks who have an addiction to affirmation need a certain narcissistic supply. And, and I told you my story a couple weeks ago when I was growing up, I didn't really have a place. I didn't have an identity, right? I wasn't the jock. I wasn't the, the ladies' man, believe it or not. I know, it's hard to believe. Wasn't the ladies' man, wasn't the scholar. I didn't have my, my place. So when I found my place, which is at church and in business, I just, I just dove into those things because that's where I was getting my affirmation. So the more I worked at church, and we're talking about unhealthy 60, 70, 80 hours a week. The more I worked at church, the more affirmation I got in church because church just loves workers, right? And it's called faithfulness, commitment. It's all kinds of spiritual things. It's called addiction to me, right? And I was addicted to the affirmation that came along with it. And then I opened you know, some businesses and I built houses and I just did all kinds of stuff. My heroine was when somebody came up to me and says, Mal, Scott, I don't know how you do it all. It's like, well, look at your life. You clearly don't know how I do it all. <laughs> right? Kind of kidding. But, Inside, I'm like, that feels so good. That was my heroine, right? Somebody affirming my value and all the work that I was doing. Now, a related addiction is workaholism. But workaholism was really founded on my need for affirmation. But workaholism was working way, way too much uh, and having a dependency on that work. And part of it was fine to a degree when it was just my wife and I, because my wife would work with me in, in church. And so it felt like we were doing this together. Um, but then I had other ventures going on, and, and it was tolerable until we had kids. And we had three kids in a hurry. Now, and I didn't change my habits. I wasn't home anymore. My wife was now at home, not working with me in church. And I became very quickly the worst husband ever and a terrible father. I didn't say no to anything. Added three babies, said no to nothing. And I became a terrible father real quick. It strained my marriage. I felt a disconnect with my, my, my little kids, which I didn't want. And so I had to fix that. So in the year 2000, totally changed my life around, rebuilt everything. And so now my habits, if you were to, 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 to walk around with me for a week, you would say, I have very specific boundaries. And I have a very healthy work schedule and a healthy family schedule and healthy vacation time. I have very healthy, you know, systems to guard my schedule. But my confession to you is that I am still a functioning workaholic. Because I may not be addicted to affirmation anymore, but I am addicted to productivity. I need to be productive. I have a deep need to be productive. That's where I get my sense of meaning. If I'm doing something, if I am building something, if I am moving something forward, if I'm developing an idea or a project, then I feel complete. If I'm not producing, I feel completely stressed and I feel empty. I am addicted to productivity. So that's my addiction history that I'm comfortable sharing with you. What are your addictions? What are your addictions?
We all have behaviors that are psychologically or physiologically habit-forming to the extent that stopping that behavior causes distress. We all have those addictive tendencies. Now, some of our addictive tendencies are fairly benign, right? They're benign. They, they don't cause any harm. My Mexican food addiction might be clinically an addiction, but it does no harm. In fact, the reverse. It's the source of life for all. <laughs> it's not, there's no harm to it. But there are things that we do that may seem very harmless, but we need to still pay attention. It's healthy to pay attention to the things that may be habit-forming, that may cause distress if we stop those things. I'll give you a couple of examples here. Uh, you know, some of us may drink casually, you know, drink or two socially. No problem with that. There's no prohibition against alcohol in the Bible. In fact, I can point to you uh, a verse that says, uh, drink alcohol, <laughs> right? So there's no biblical prohibition against alcohol. And so most Christians engage socially, you know, a drink or two, no problem. But we just got to be careful. We know that can be habit forming and it can cause harm. So if that one or two drinks socially turns into one or two drinks a day, turns into two or three, turns into coping with stress, relaxing, winding down, you know, that coping mechanism for all of life, now all of a sudden it has become an addiction. There are so many functional alcoholics who have several drinks a day to get themselves wound down and to sleep. Wake up in the morning perfectly functional, right? Just be careful. Food. If food is more than satisfying hunger a few times a day, be careful. Food can easily, easily become a way to manage stress or to bring some kind of comfort or control in life. Shopping can feel good. In fact, our brains send out pleasure chemicals when we buy something new. We get something new, that's great. Now, we shop and we get stuff we need, great. It's also fine to shop and get something we want, no problem. But sometimes it keeps going, it keeps going. And we shop for more than what we need, and we shop for more than a few things we want. We're now shopping as an addiction. And it is so easy to shop, you don't have to go anywhere. Amazon.com sells everything. I looked for the most, secure, the most obscure little door part of some bolt up there, searched it, there it was right there, one click buy. Just one click buy, one click buy, one click buy. It is so easy and it feels good. Did that shipment come? Is there a box in the front? <laughs> this, one, this one might feel harmless, but there's real harm lurking. If your internet browsing, your internet browsing is taking you down roads you know aren't healthy, it might feel harmless. There's nobody around, just me and the computer screen, and we're having a little bit of a good time. What's the harm? You might think it's not hurting anybody, but first know that that entire industry is a cesspool of drug addiction, human trafficking, and the total degradation and abuse of women. Even if we're on some free little whatever, we're just gonna take a glimpse of a couple images, we are participating in this horrific industry. It also does mess with your head. And it can lead to an addiction that needs to be fed with more serious images, deeper and deeper levels of dehumanization. It, it may feel benign, but there's real harm there. There are also addictions that are just blatantly malignant. These addictions that are just the stereotypical addictions that we can sort of all point to. In fact, when I first showed that addiction screen, uh, you might have thought, well, this sermon's not for me, it's for those addicts. In fact, we specifically didn't promote the addiction subject today because a lot of you might have felt as though this would not be for you, but it is, it's for all of us, right? It's for all of us. And it does include those addictions that are the stereotypical, malignant, dangerous addictions that we all point to. 
alcoholism being among the most prevalent. We all know how alcoholism can destroy lives and families. We all have a story of how it might have destroyed us or destroyed those that we love. My own family was nearly destroyed by alcoholism. Told you the story many times as part of our journey. Growing up, my dad was an alcoholic, completely uh, mastered by alcoholism. But one of the things that we had to realize as a family is that we were addicted as well. We were addicted to the lifestyle of his alcoholism. That's called co what? Dependency, codependency. It's, it's, it's the same addictive tendencies, but instead of being the ones addicted to alcohol, we are addicted to the alcoholic lifestyle. And so my mom was just a classic spouse of an alcoholic. I was the classic firstborn child of an alcoholic. My brother, the classic secondborn child of an alcoholic. And that was our addiction. We had to, to go through therapy to realize it's not just my dad, it's all of us. In fact, uh, I remember the first therapy session we went to as a family when my dad finally realized that he probably has a problem that he has to, to work out. And we went to family therapy in, uh, in Corona. And I'll never forget this day because I was actually excited that my dad was going to be reamed by this psychologist. I mean, I couldn't wait. The harm that had been caused, you know, he's going to get it back and, and this, this psychologist is going to nail him. And so uh, I, I'm sitting there, my foot tapping, oh, he's going to get it. And, and she asked a few questions. And then she said, Scott, explain why you are so passive aggressive. <laughs> I think I was 16 or 17 years old. My dad is the SO who's supposed to be getting it and you're coming after me. I was enraged the entire trip home from Corona to Temecula. I mean, enraged, how dare she? We never went back to her. <laughs> but <laughs> it was the best thing that happened truly in, in my whole development through this uh, addiction recovery. It was my issue. I had to take responsibility for my addictive part in our addictive story. We all know how drug addiction steals the lives of young men and women. These young men and women who have every potential to live incredibly, extraordinarily, extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary lives, but it's taken away by drugs for all kinds of reasons. Maybe their household circumstance is terrible, and maybe their social circumstance is terrible, and, and, and life around them is pressing in and, and causing extraordinary pressure, and then they get together with the wrong group, and then they experiment when, in, their, in their youth and just go down the black hole of, of extreme drug addiction, of methamphetamines and opioids and so forth. It's an absolute terrible scourge in our country. In fact, 63,600 lives were lost last year in America because of drug overdose. Drug overdose deaths have now surpassed breast cancer deaths, and they're two times more than car fatality deaths, car, car fatalities. It is a scourge in America. Now, I give you this, this, this list not to, not to judge, but to simply say that there are very, very serious problems that we, have to, that we all have to embrace, national problems and personal problems. We all know how sex addiction can bring utter ruin to the human soul. Sex addiction can destroy marriages and even contribute to criminal behavior. And we certainly know how smoking and overeating causes extraordinary harm to people. The amount of deaths from smoking and overeating vastly exceed any other uh, uh, cause of death in, in the United States of America. Addiction is real, it is harmful, and it's for all of us. Again, not to judge, but to simply have the humility to say that all of us struggle to some degree. And maybe we struggle with addictions that are just more private and personal and psychological. Or maybe we struggle with addictions that are as serious as the ones that we've mentioned here. 
regardless of whether your addictions are seemingly benign or blatantly malignant, we need to walk a journey of recovery from addiction. All of us. We need to, to, to try to figure out how we can be resurrected from addiction. It might ha- be helpful for us to know that the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, was a self-professed addict. And here's how he put it in Romans chapter 7. He is penning, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the most profound book about the gospel ever written, the book of Romans, and here's what he admits. He says, I am unspiritual. I'm a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Can you relate? I can relate. I got a list of things I know I should be doing that I'm not doing. I have a list of things that I am doing that I know I shouldn't be doing. And I do them over and over again, right? We all, author of half the New Testament, admits his addictive tendencies. So let's just do the same. Let's admit that it's just part of human nature. Now, this is not to make it flippant. Oh, hey, we're all kind of addicts, so therefore let's not worry about it. No, I'd say just the opposite. Well, if we can humbly admit that all of us have addictive tendencies and we can say, yes, it is part of our story. It's part of all of our stories. That we are broken people that live in broken worlds and we, and we make broken decisions. Let's take that seriously, but it's all of our journeys together. It's human nature. We also should recognize, I think, uh, in a healthy way that addiction can be a disease. Uh, decades ago, this was very controversial, where there would be some that identified addiction as a disease, and there were others that said, well, you're taking out personal responsibility if you just say it's a disease, right? But this discussion is really over. Uh, science has determined that, that addiction, in some part, has to do with a disease, genetics. In fact, here's a quote from the AMA. Like diabetes, cancer, and heart disease, addiction is caused by a very complex combination of behavioral, environmental, and biological factors. Genetic risk factors account for about half of the likelihood that an individual will develop addiction. As you know, we all have genetic codes, and and while there's not a gene of addiction, there are certain genes that lead to certain propensities for addiction. And, And this was specifically found through a very comprehensive study of twins. Uh, Twin studies are just gold, right? Twins that separate. There are fraternal twins that separate, and there are identical twins that separate. And they tracked thousands of these separated twins, both fraternal and identical. Now, the identical twins have the same DNA, right? The separated twins with the same DNA tended to have the same addictions. That was not true of separated fraternal twins. It just speaks loud and clear that addiction, in part has to do with genetics. Science says about 50% of our tendencies has to do with genetics. That doesn't mean that everybody with genetic tendencies towards addiction, which I guarantee I have. I guarantee I have genetic tendencies towards addiction. Uh, When I get involved in something, I dive all in and people around me go, you're weird. Well, I have addictive tendencies to really dive in and grab a hold, you know. Um, That's there. It's real. Just because I have genetic tendencies doesn't mean I'm going to be addicted. And just because you don't have genetic tendencies, it doesn't mean you're not going to be addicted. It's just a factor, about a 50% factor. So knowing that's very healthy. There's also the world of brain science when it comes to addiction, which is absolutely fascinating. I'm not a brain scientist, but I've studied this a ton. gone to a few seminars about this from professionals. Follow me here. I think this will make sense. Our brains were wired due to hundreds of thousands of years of hunting and gathering. Our brains were wired as hunter-gatherers. And, and, you know, God did this pretty well. He put pleasure centers in our brain 
to fire off pleasure chemicals when we're involved in activities that lead to survival. Good plan, right? We should get some pleasure in things that contribute to survival. And so we have a pleasure center in our brain. When we eat something, chemicals are released that give us the sense of pleasure. Now, when we're hunter, hunting and gathering, and we uh, you know, wake up before dawn, and we get our whole crew together, and we spend the entire day tracking down game, killing the game, taking it back to the camp, skinning and prepping it, cooking it, and feeding it to the village. Boy, when you eat that meal at the end of the day, pleasure center fires, it feels good, and you say to each other, hey, we ate, we live, we feel good, let's do it again tomorrow. It takes a lot of work, though. Uh, you may have heard that when we engage sexually, um, there's pleasure. Have you heard that? I've heard. I've read. So wherever we're involved in activities that have to do with human survival, God has wired pleasure centers to release pleasure chemicals. Makes sense. When we're hunting and gathering, those pleasure centers are firing off pleasure chemicals fairly rarely because it takes all day to get a meal. Then the advent of trade. Humankind civilized for a little bit and decided, hmm, why is every tribe doing everything? How about the tribe that lives by the farmland? How about they farm food? How about the tribe that lives in the grassland? They take care of the cattle. And how about the tribe that doesn't have any land? How about they do sort of the manufacturing of tools or textiles? You know, how about we specialize? When we specialize, something incredible happened. The food supply went through the roof. The alcohol supply went through the roof because every tribe is specializing. So all this tribe does is make corn, and they're awesome at it. And they trade a ton of corn to other tribes to get the tools, to get the alcohol, to get whatever they're specialized at, right? So now all of a sudden, the supply of everything goes through the roof. And this painting is called gluttony. Now you have a lot of stuff. You got a lot of alcohol around, and it's cheap. So it's not just for the kings and, you know, prince, princesses. There's alcohol everywhere. There's food everywhere. And so now we can engage in the things that cause the pleasure centers of the brain to release pleasure chemicals, and we can engage in those activities all the time. How about the information age? This is what we've become now in the information age. <laughs> Everything that causes pleasure is everywhere all the time. Sexual stimulation, I mean, we could do that bad boy 24-7. We don't need to wait for anything, right? <coughs> Food, alcohol, it is everywhere. Chemicals, mood-altering chemicals, everywhere. Our culture is basically begging everybody to be addicted to everything because it's all here. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait. It's a fascinating reality. Overprescription of drugs is another reality. Uh, the world is coming to the conclusion, especially in America, that we are overprescribing. Here is the opioid prescription chart from 1992 to present. Pharmaceuticals and doctors flooded this world with opioids, especially the United States. I read this on, on a CNN article and I didn't believe it. In 2014, for every 100 people in the United States, 81 opioid prescriptions were given. I'm going to say that again. For every 100 people in America, 81 opioid prescriptions were given. It doesn't mean 81% of people were using these morphine-type pills. 
It just means that that's the amount of chemicals that were flooding our world. So many opioids were prescribed that every single American can be on a full dose of opioids for an entire month. That's how many of these chemicals are out there. And, and sure, it may have been intended to help, you know, you, especially, you know, the doctors want to relieve pain. And so, you know, there's, there's some good motives there for sure. But thankfully, there, there's a realization that, that this has gone overboard. And there's a dramatic pullback. You saw at the end that pullback. It's about 9 to 10% pullback of opioids a year right now, which is awesome. There's also the reality of mental illness. Mental illness is a big deal when it comes to addiction. Uh, this is called dual diagnosis, somebody with a medical illness who's also addicted to drugs. Now, we can understand that if somebody has a, med- a mental illness, they will want to medicate themselves. They have a mental illness, let's just say between a quarter and a third of Americans have, have a mental illness of some kind. If you're wrestling through that, you know, and the, and the wrestling is, is severe at times, you're desperate to calm down, you're desperate to wake up, you're desperate to be functional, you're desperate to sleep, you're desperate to stop the voices, you're desperate to, to, to function in some normal way or just to escape the deep pain. You're going to want to medicate yourself. And there are so many chemicals out there to medicate yourself, from alcohol to street drugs, um, to uh, mood-altering drugs, they're out there in incredible ways, right? And so now you have somebody who's mentally ill who's also gotten themselves addicted because they want to self-medicate. That's very complex. Usually people who are in that condition are sometimes hard to treat. Oftentimes they, are, they don't have, say, high-paying jobs with good insurance because it's so complex and there's such consequence there. What do you treat first? Do you treat the mental illness first? Do you treat the drug addiction first? And how do you navigate that? So, so complicated. I set this whole stage towards this goal. We need to be patient with our own addiction and compassionate towards those who are addicted. So many people who are addicted, even something that's kind of what we would consider sort of lightweight or personal or psychological or private, right? If we're addicted, we can sometimes hate ourselves, especially if we're in a religious circle. If we're in a religious circle and we're addicted, we can hate ourselves. God must be disappointed with me. I'm not faithful. I'm not religious. If I was honest about my addiction, people would look down on me. You look at yourself in, your, in the mirror and you say, you should be better. You should do better. There's a self-hatred. We've got to be chill with ourselves. For those of you who are addicted, and all of us is, relax. Be patient with yourself. God does not look down on you. We know the story. You're his dearly loved son, his dearly loved daughter. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for all of our failures, which includes our a tendency towards addiction that hurts ourselves and even hurts others. We're forgiven. You're a dearly loved son of God, dearly loved child of God. He loves you. Nothing can separate you from him. That's the reality. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, yes, we have a journey to go. I, I am mastered by some things, right? I, I, I'm an addict in some things. I want to walk a journey of freedom, but be patient with yourself and be compassionate towards those who are addicted. of Americans, 80% of Americans think that addicts are lazy and weak. Let's stop that. Let's have a better, more mature understanding. Then let's answer the question, how can we live free from addiction? Or at least walk a journey of freedom. In in our final seven minutes together right here, we're going to talk about some principles to live free from addiction out of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, a self-proclaimed addict, wrote a book of the Bible, an entire book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. It's a big one to a bunch of addicts. If you uh, ever think your church has some problems, read the book of 1 Corinthians. That's a church with problems. Holy cow. They've got problems. 
And, and, and Paul's addressing their addictive tendencies, which created incredible destruction. Here's a few principles uh, from 1 Corinthians. First, let's have a vision of freedom. Let's get excited about a vision of freedom. A vision of freedom begins with taking fearless inventory of our own addictions. This is looking at yourself in the mirror, not hating yourself, but saying, just being realistic, a fearless inventory, where am I addicted? And to have a vision of freedom. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. There was this saying going around the early church, I have the right to do anything. We might call it today freedom in Christ. Jesus died for my sins. I'm reconciled with God. I'm free from religious law. I have freedom in Christ. I can do anything. So this is that statement of the early church. I have the right to do anything. Paul says, well, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You love that? I will not be mastered by anything. That's that vision of freedom. I don't have to be mastered by anything. Whether it's a physical addiction or a psychological addiction, we obviously deal a lot with um, the addiction of anger. Anger can very well be an addiction. You are hating your dad. You're hating your mom. You're hating that person who hurt you. And you're seething in that, in that hatred, right? And sometimes people will, will, will you know, want to talk about that. And to be able to say, hey, listen, that person you hate, they own you. They absolutely own you. No, they don't own me. Yes, they do. They think, they think about you far less than you're thinking about them. They are in your head. The person you're angry at, the person you're better at, they own you. You are a master and you're addicted to that anger. You're addicted to that bitterness. Let's walk a road of freedom to not be mastered by anything physiologically or anything psychologically. That's kind of a cool thought. I don't have to be a master to anything. To summarize this point, I can do anything, but I don't want to do anything because I don't want to be a slave. Is there freedom in Christ? Yes. Are we free from, you know, the law and the rules and regulations of religion? Yes, we're free. We can do anything, but we don't want to do anything if it makes us a slave, if it makes us a master of something else. Secondly, uh, we can live in a healthy community. We are called to live within a healthy community. Anybody in the addiction world will say, you cannot recover alone. You cannot recover alone. I don't care if it's a kind of a secret private psychological addiction or if it's a public, gnarly, you know, malignant addiction. Wherever you need to walk a journey of recovery and wherever I need to walk a journey of recovery, we need to walk it together. We need to walk that journey together. We're designed to recover together. In fact, scientifically, there's a direct link between loneliness and addiction. It's like a, a piston here. The more healthy we are relationally, the less of a propensity we have to addiction. The less we are healthy relationally, the more we have a propensity towards addiction. Healthy life really is about being connected in healthy relationships. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. The addiction of the Corinthian church was so bad, it was actually on full display during communion. Can you grab a hold of that? You're celebrating the Lord's Supper, right? the bread of the broken body of Christ, the wine of the shed blood of, of Christ. Their addiction was on display during communion. Here's the story. When you come together, Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead, what? On your own. That's the problem. They're on their own. They're thinking of just themselves. So what happens? As a result, one person eats it all, thank you very much, and another remains hungry, and another gets drunk. That's a fun church service. You're about to celebrate, I mean, a sacrament 
of the church, a holy sacrament. And people are on their own, thinking of themselves, not thinking of anyone else, not well connected. So somebody gets down and, and just takes all the bread I'm, I'm, and just shoves it down their gullet. Another person said, free wine. I mean, wow. Why? Because they're on their own. What's the solution? A couple verses later. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat this sacred meal, you should all eat what? Together. That's the recovery journey, together. If we're on our own, it's us. We'll get what we want, we'll get what, our, what we desire, and that's where the addictive tendencies really tend to, to just get out of control. When we're not connected, when we're not together, let's be together. Uh, whenever we counsel people around here for pastoral counseling, we say time and time again, be around good people doing good things. You know, the therapy side of recovery is so critically important. The, the 12 steps of recovery are just proven to be very important, right? But I'm telling you, this is about half the battle. Just good people around good things. Good people and good things. This is, is so incredible. When there's a marriage that's struggling, I mean really struggling, well, are you around good people doing good things? Well, no, we kind of lost this friend, lost this friend. Get reconnected. If somebody's struggling personally with an addiction or anger or whatever it is, are you around good people doing good things? Well, this friendship got alienated. The more isolated we are, the deeper our problems tend to become. But when we're well-connected and well-cared for and, and live an authentic, honest relationship, when we start to struggle, we're starting to sink, there's people right there. Hey, what's going on, what's going on in your life? Let me give you a hand. Let me pull you up. Being connected in healthy relationships is so critically important. And then finally, a deeper fulfillment. The road to recovery, the road of resurrecting from addiction is about finding a deeper fulfillment. We all have hungry souls. That's just what it means to be alive. We all have hungry souls and we want that feeling of fulfillment. We crave that more than anything else and we want that hunger satisfied. So here's the invitation. Let your hungry soul find its real food. Your hungry soul will be satisfied with real food. But the problem is we don't really know what the real food is. We know we want to be fulfilled. We know we want to be satisfied. So we go after the fake food. What's the fake food? It's the fake food of entertainment. That's going to make me feel good. Fake food of food. The fake food of sexual stimulation. The fake food of chemicals. We're just, we want to feel what we want to feel. We want to feel fulfilled. We want to feel content. So we go after fake food. And you know the drill. You get it, it makes you feel good, it's gone. You get it, it makes you feel good, it's gone. Where's that real food? that the soul hungers for? Well, I believe it's, it's this, finding a fulfilling cause. Without a fulfilling cause, there's no grounding in life. Without a fulfilling cause, there's no reason to feel fulfilled. And, and having a job and a family, this might sound a little whatever, but having a job and a family is really not the fulfilling cause. There are so many, now follow me, there are so many people who have a job and have a family, but still they're kind of in their own world. I'm getting a job to provide for my family. When I'm at home, I really want my way at home, right? And, and I want my home to, to look a certain way and feel a certain way, and I want people in my home to make me feel a certain way, and, and when they don't make me feel a certain way, boy, there's going to be an argument, there's going to be a pushback, there's going to be conflict. So even though we are providing, which is good, and we have a family, which is good, very often we're still kind of in it for us. A truly fulfilling cause is when we die to self, we die to living to ourself, 
and we live for the benefit of others. That's a fulfilling cause. That's a fulfilling cause. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Again, here's that phrase, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Now listen to what he says. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. The road to recovery is living for the good of others. Fulfillment is found when we are living for the good of others. I've been doing you know, ministry and pastoral counseling for, I don't know, 30 years, and I have never, ever had somebody say, you know, Scott, my life is a mess. I'm doing so much good for so many people. <laughs> I've not had that conversation. It's always, I'm struggling, and then we get, understandably, into a self-defense mode, and, and I've got to protect myself, and I've got to make changes, and I have to, I have to, I have to, and we... And we struggle kind of in isolation. And it does make some sense. If we're struggling, we get self-protected, we get isolated because we think we've got to work a lot of stuff out. And so we separate ourselves from people to support us. And we also separate ourselves from a fulfilling mission of serving others. We get myopic, right? And it's hard to say when I'm struggling, I'm actually going to do the reverse. Totally reverse engineer this thing. When I'm struggling, instead of separating from people, and getting myopic, I'm going to do the reverse. I'm actually going to engage more people, and I'm going to get serving. And I'm telling you, when somebody is struggling, if they can take the risks of being vulnerable, and they can surround themselves with even more friends, and take the risk of saying, you know what, I'm struggling here, but darn it, I'm going to help other people. Whether it's here at the church or through the church or community service, whatever it is, I'm just going to live a meaningful life and I'm going to serve other people. That's where meaning goes through the roof and the soul is truly satisfied. But if we are living, thinking of ourselves and even just our own family, that fulfillment goes in the toilet and we will seek to satisfy our hungry soul with fake food, which usually means a bad habit or addiction. On Friday night, we had a volunteer appreciation dinner, just kind of opened the doors for anybody who wants to come. A few hundred people showed up just to have a casual dinner together, gave out some, like we said, fun awards, and just celebrated being a volunteer. And as we're, as we're having that dinner together, um, Brian Roush and I were just chit-chatting. He's been a volunteer around here for about 25 years, and he just had this really cool smile on his face. And, hey, what are you thinking? He goes, I'm just so happy to be able to serve here. 25 years just doing his thing around Rancho, just a few hours a week. He's a man who's got a job and got a career. You know, he's, he's doing life like the rest of us, but he takes a few hours a week and he serves. And he's just overlooking the people at this dinner, just so content, not just that he gets to serve, but that we have a whole community that's serving one another. And the word he used, this is just so fulfilling. The more our soul is filled with a life of meaning, a life of selfless service to other people, well-connected with friends, the less our tendencies are going to be for self-destructive behavior. Fearlessly take inventory of where you may be addicted. Envision freedom from those addictions. Find a healthy community and find fulfillment in serving. And I'll tell you, this is my family's story. My dad's alcoholism and our addiction to this codependent lifestyle, this is it. This isn't just science. This isn't just Bible study. This isn't just hypothetical. We have walked this journey and our family continues to walk this journey. There was a point where we had to take inventory of our family's dysfunction. We envisioned that freedom and sought help through recovery programs, through therapists. We got involved in healthy community right here. 
I dove into youth group. My mom dove, dove into women's groups. Uh, my dad eventually, when he became free from alcohol and, and received Jesus Christ and the grace and love of God, he got involved here. Our whole family found a healthy community here at Ranch Community Church, and our whole family right now is finding fulfillment in serving here. This is our journey. Powerful, profound journey that continues today. I can't say we are 100% recovered from all of our stuff, but we're still on that journey today, decades later, and we wouldn't want it any different. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we, uh, we thank you weekly for your grace. Your grace that covers our failures, even the failures of addiction. Not just the public ones that are very clearly destructive, but even the private ones, the psychological ones, the personal ones that, that, that we feel very deeply uh, in our own private moments and quiet moments, and we feel the guilt and shame of it all. And, and God, when we struggle, we tend to isolate ourselves, and, um, and we can tend to be a little myopic, but I pray that that today, through the principles of 1 Corinthians, we will see the truth here, God, that we should take fearless inventory of our addictions, not be ashamed of those, be patient with ourselves, no self-hatred, and then walk a, a journey, a journey of envisioning what freedom might look like, being well-connected with one another in relationships and small groups and friendships and, and even celebrate recovery uh, on Thursday night. God, maybe for a lot of us, we might want us to start showing up to that and getting help in community together. And then to enjoy the fulfillment of living a life of meaning by serving one another. Uh, to have a posture of service in our own home so that we're not living for our will or our way at home, but we're living for the benefit of our spouse and our kids. That, that we might be able to put a, a few volunteer hours using our gifts and skills and abilities to impact the lives of others. God, would you allow us all to walk this journey of freedom, all the while enjoying your grace in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen.